Welcome to the Fintech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 328. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lendit Fintech. Today's episode is brought to you by Lendit Fintech LATAM, the region's leading fintech event. It's happening both online and in person in Miami on December 7th and 8th. Latin America is still the hottest region for fintech in the world, and Lendit Fintech LATAM features the leading players in the region. So join the LATAM fintech community this year, where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. In-person and virtual tickets are available at lendit.com slash LATAM. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Laura Speakerman. She is the Chief Revenue Officer and co-founder of Alloy. Now, Alloy is a really interesting company. They are what is known as an identity decisioning platform, and they help banks and fintechs onboard customers and verify the identity of the customers they're onboarding, and we get into that process in some depth. Uh, We talk about what types of of customers are using this today. We talk about how the technology works, differences between integrating a bank and a fintech, what the impact of the pandemic has been, and we also dig into some of their new offerings, such as their credit underwriting offering. And uh, we talk about diversity and the commitment to diversity that Alloy has and Laura has specifically, and much more. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thanks for having me, Peter. My pleasure. So let's get started by giving the listeners a little bit of background. I know you've been doing Alloy for many years now, but take us through some of the highlights of your career to date. I started in fintech about 10 years ago. I joined, I was the first employee at a fintech company called Copo Copo. It was a company based in Nairobi that has built a merchant payment software platform and now a lending platform off of the M-Pesa rails. So I'm sure your listeners are familiar with M-Pesa, but it's sort of the way people send P2P payments in East Africa in particular, run by the telco uh, Safaricom. That was my first foray into fintech, and it's where I just fell in love with fintech infrastructure and saw firsthand how modernizing the infrastructure could really affect what financial services were possible in any given market. And I ended up then joining an investment company where we were investing in emerging markets, funds, or companies that had a social or environmental impact. That company eventually was acquired by Goldman Sachs, but I spent a few years there, really loved it in the beginning, not so much at the end, felt like I was just jealous of the entrepreneurs I was meeting and Mm -hmm. really wanted to go back into an operating role. And I was really fortunate to work largely with a client who cared a lot about fintech and financial services in emerging markets. And so got to see a bunch of different models and microfinance funds and all sorts of stuff that was really inspiring for me. So a few years later, when I decided I needed to go back to operating, I joined a very early stage startup in the ACH payment space. So it was also onboarding focused as we are at Alloy, but this was onboarding for payments, getting money into a crypto wallet or a brokerage account or whatever it might be. We at that company had this realization that part of the challenges in onboarding to financial services are of course payments. You don't want ACHs to take three to five days. It's a less than ideal system to say the least in the United States, but part of it is also identity challenges. 
fraud, KYC, all those things. And so that's what inspired us to, to start Alloy. So that's kind of been the last 10 years and Alloy has been the last six of those years we started right. Alloy in 2015. Right. Okay, so maybe, can you just flesh out a little bit more about that founding story? I'd, I'd like to kind of get some of the thinking that you had back then and what was the inspiration to start the company? It was as simple as we were a very, very early stage company and we wanted to buy the product that Alloy now sells. We were talking to our customers, which were largely early stage fintech companies. This was 2014. So there was a kind of the early stages of crypto, talking to a number of different companies who were trying to acquire customers. And they were coming to us and saying, look, half the time I'm onboarding someone, I'm sending them to a manual review process because their name matches, but their address doesn't match. They're probably who they say they are, but I need to have this information verified. And XYZ public records data source has their address that's probably from two years ago and they moved. Or they're a student or they're a young person or they've moved to the US in the last couple of years. There's just really hard data to find. And once you send someone to manual review, about 80% of them just drop out altogether. And these are really expensive, high customer acquisition cost, high LTV products. And so it's kind of just like this buckets of money that we saw being wasted. And so we tried to buy a solution, just incorporate into ours, didn't exist. And then, you know, as we went on, we realized this is a huge opportunity. We're seeing that APIs are starting to emerge in financial services full stop. Plaid was coming to the market in 2015. Stripe obviously existed. And people were taking these kind of building blocks, these API modules very seriously at that point as, as fundamental ways to build the next generation of financial services and financial products. And so we said, look, if digital financial services are going to be around for a while, and we believe they are, then people are going to need to build on top of an identity platform and identity API. Right. So then tell us a little bit about the, the first product and sort of the early days of the company you know, getting it to market and exactly what the product did and how it's evolved maybe as well. So in the early days, we were serving just other early stage fintech companies. That was who we knew. Those were our friends. That was our community. Those are the use cases that felt most obvious to us. And what they really wanted was an API that they could query, get a yes, no, maybe back. They'd get some data back from our API and make a decision off of that. As we started working with banks and we started initially just working with partner banks or banks that were taking fintech very seriously. So again, either by partnering with fintech companies or launching their own digital banking brands, for example, or neobanks within the bank brand, they were coming to us and saying, the API is great, but we need a little bit of software around it, right? We need an audit record. We need a dashboard to be able to show this. We need some permission controls. So that was really in 20. 17, I would say, as we started fleshing out the product to become a little bit more usable by not just fintech developers, by folks who are doing manual reviews, analysts, compliance people. So we, we kind of expanded the profile, I think. And then 2018, 2019 came around, embedded fintech banking as a service blew up or started to blow up. I think this is actually the year where we're seeing the fruits of that kind of come about. Mm -hmm. But that's where we found that there were other products we could really integrate into and be a building block sort of built into them. So we also started offering our API to channel partners. So banking as a service partners, online account opening partners, and the product is the same, but it was really how we went to market together. That was kind of a, a new thing for us. Right. And then we started working with really large banks. You know, then we have to work with how do we handle case management? I mean, there's just this sort of number of 
products and workflows we touched got larger and larger as we started working with larger financial institutions. Right, right. So can you just take us through how the technology works? You know, during the onboarding process, you're doing identity verification. What is it that you're actually doing? And what is the customer who is actually ultimately trying to verify their identity? What do they have to do? What our clients are doing is they're integrating our API and our software platform. Once they've integrated, which is pretty simple, they configure their own rules and data sources inside the Alloy dashboard. Mm -hmm. In practice, we help them do that. We say, here are best practices. Here are some of the data partners that I think will make a lot of sense for your use case or your demographic or your risk tolerance. And so we're kind of holding their hands for that process. But the technology itself is an API that aggregates a bunch of third-party data sources. So you can think of these as traditional, the credit bureaus, the public records databases, alternative data sources like phone and email databases, device authentication tools, biometrics tools, like sort of you name it, we have it. We go and do those integrations. We put them in one API so that you as a client can configure, here are the data sources I want to use. Here are the rules I want to apply. And then what's great about the technology is that you might start off with one particular workflow, one set of data partners, one set of rules, but three months in, you realize, you know what, I'm being a little bit too conservative. I'm turning away a few too many people who probably look good. You might do that with A-B testing in our platform, with a retro analysis, but you can change the rules really easily. So in a few clicks, you can say, I'm actually going to lower my risk tolerance here. I'm going to add a new data source here, test it out. So we've made it so that it's incredibly dynamic, really easy to test and configure on an ongoing basis. So it really becomes this tool you sort of live in to improve and optimize your workflows over time. And then, of course, as you add in new products, new users, new demographics, you can respond or as compliance, like as the regulatory environment changes, the fraud environment changes, you can react really quickly in real time. So then I guess so some customers, I imagine, then are just using, you know, they might be using some basic data. Others are wanting to take a photograph of your driver's license, I imagine. Right. So basically, however deep they want to go, you, you can kind of handle it. it sounds you can like. support that. And that's exactly right. So different kind of levels of how sure do you want to be about this person? And, and usually that's a test of how high risk that activity is, right? So you might even want to have different step up triggers. Maybe it's depending on how much money that person is transferring. Maybe it's on whether this is crypto or not, whether it's you know how much fraud you're seeing in a given use case or demographic. So there are different things that would influence how deep you want to go. Mm-hmm. So when I was doing some reading about you guys, you really have a pretty broad customer base. We do. You know, you have, as you say, traditional banks, you know, digital banks, and then crypto. So I'm just curious about how they're using your system. I mean, it seems like there's different identity verification demands depending on the type of organization, I would say. But what's different when you work with the different types of verticals within fintech? There are some commonalities. Everyone wants a good user experience. Everyone wants high conversion rate. Everyone wants low fraud, but they're going to have slightly different risk tolerances there. Some businesses will just see more fraud than others, depending on where they're advertising, for example. And as you'd expect, there's a distinction even within the fintech companies, right? There's earlier stage. They're just trying to get live. They actually don't really even care about conversion that much because they're only onboarding they're friends and family right now. They just need a proof point. <laughs> if they have to do those all manually, that's fine because it's three per day. So who cares? That's kind of one aspect. Then there's growth mode where they're saying conversion actually really matters, right? We're spending tons of money. We're doing these splashy billboards. 
we really, really need to acquire these customers. So we care if they can make it through our funnel and we care about customer experience, but maybe we don't really care about fraud that much. I mean, that's a real profile where of course you should care about fraud, but maybe it's not your biggest factor because you're just trying to prove to investors that this thing works. You'll figure out the fraud problem later, right? That's on the expense part of your, <laughs> your bucket. And then there's kind of mature enterprise fintech companies where they may care a lot more about going international, for example, right? They figured this out in the United States, but now they need to scale it and they need to get fraud under control. They're under the eyes of the regulators now, so they have to pay more attention to what they're doing. They also have to kind of prove what they're doing and have a really nicely, easily digestible way of sharing that, for example, with auditors or regulators. So there really is a different value prop for everyone. Of course, on the banking side, same deal. Community banks, for example, I think their motivations are largely around increasing deposits, just being able to compete and stay alive against the biggest banks in the United States and their digital experiences, which is really hard for them, but they won't necessarily grow the way a fintech company does. So they want to increase their deposit base. They want to create a great customer experience, but it's very, very different from a company that's raised $100 billion. This is trying to, you know, trying to be a rocket ship. So anyways, all to say, they're all very different profiles. But you might be surprised at how similar some of their workflows are, right? That the way the tools they use are not that different. They all want to understand their identities. They have to. There's a little bit more experimentation and optimization that would happen in a fintech company that banks get to learn from, which I think is cool. Banks get to sort of see like, oh, the fintech companies are starting to do this. They're seeing some of the fraud first before I am. Now I get to learn in a cycle with Alloy, you know, two months after the fintech companies had to do this. Right, right. So I imagine, you know, the pandemic probably was pretty good for you guys, I'm guessing, because you had the whole segment of customers. Obviously, the fintechs have always been doing digital onboarding for the most part, but there'd be probably a whole bunch of banks that have never done digital onboarding or had done it very in a very rudimentary way. So take us through sort of what was that like for you guys? Yeah, I mean, of course, I think like everyone, we freaked out. In March and April, we did a hiring freeze. Our investors freaked out. Our company was is based in New York City. And at the time, almost everyone was based there. So of course, number one thing was just make sure everyone's okay. At the height of COVID in, in New York, that was a really scary time. It was May-ish when we started going, oh my God, I think this is like, first of all, our team's okay. Second of all, I think this is like really good for our business. We started seeing usage grow in a bunch of our areas, our, our use cases. Of course, some were hit hard credit use cases in particular, but mm-hmm. on the whole, we saw things just rising, you know, going up into the right. PPP, I think was a really good example of where FinTech just was able to step up to and say like the government's kind of failed us right now. They have put zero plans in place, but they've told us that we need to stand up a program by Monday. So we got a lot of panicked calls from banks on Friday saying, help me figure this out. And that was a really good opportunity for us to help them figure out how to onboard a bunch of business customers really, really quickly. And those are business customers who are hopefully sticking with them and have a really good experience with that bank. Banks overall came to us and said, hey, you know that digital transformation project I hadn't scheduled for 2024? I need to move it up a couple of years. (laughs) These projects were great for us. Getting to be involved and helping speed digital transformation was really exciting. And I think huge for these banks who had to kind of figure out how to move a lot faster than they're used to moving. In the end, the number of daily active users of fintech products went up by 330 plus percent since January of 2020. That's really stuck with us. Like It's so funny to talk about this as if it's this crazy thing. And of course, COVID was crazy, but I feel stupid looking back and like, of course, fintech was going to grow. 
And of course, once you go fintech, you're not going to go back. You know, my mom started using Venmo during the pandemic. She's not going to go back. So it feels obvious in retrospect, but it was this huge tailwind for us. What about today? Has it changed the type of conversations you have? Like you no longer need to convince people that they need to have a digital experience. How has that changed? It has changed quite a bit. I mean, there definitely are still banks out there, you know, even as recently in the last year or two, where they just don't really have a digital strategy. And I always go into these conversations like, what is the plan then? I don't totally get it, but they certainly exist. That being said, the number of digital account openings that have been happening in the last few years has just been going up and up. And then COVID obviously changed everything, but but the numbers still start shockingly small. So I think when we started the company, it was something like 5% of accounts were being opened online. That's a pretty small number, relatively speaking. It's growing like crazy. I mean, just the rate of growth is crazy, but there's still a lot to do. I think it's just hard for banks to move fast and to adopt as much as they want to do this stuff digitally. I think they get stuck in the mindset of like, well, I've always opened accounts by having a person sit in front of me at a bank and they show me their identity and the person is right there and they can't leave. And so let's just translate that to online. And you just, it's not a one for one experience. You have to say that I'm doing this digitally. I'm going to rely on other sources of data and I have to get comfortable with that. I mean, so do the regulators. It's not just banks. Right. Right. You can always just close the tab. I mean, I know my, my own habits. If I'm opening like a whatever trading app and I'm signing up, I'm so impatient. If it takes more than eight seconds, I'm out. Right. So, so then I'm curious about that particular piece, though, the friction, because I know that most people want no friction, but then like, I think there's a balance, right? And I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, some people talk about good friction, introducing friction to make it a little bit harder so that you can verify that this person is real, but how are your customers kind of handling this kind of introducing friction? Because I imagine with your process, you can pretty much go almost frictionless to introducing a ton of friction, right? There's a, it's like a Goldilocks approach to friction where you want to not necessarily take it to zero for two reasons. One, you might be introducing more fraud, right? Like there may be some trade-offs there that you're not totally thinking through. Two, some users want a little bit of friction in their financial services experience because they don't like the idea that you could, making this up here, but from your retina, be able to get every single you know digit in your social security number and completely onboard you without having ever done anything that freaks them out. So there's some sort of balance. And of course, there's like a huge range here across age and demographic that I think is relevant, but it's, it's not necessarily that the zero friction experience is what you need. Our friends and partners at Mantle, which does online account opening for banks, mm-hmm. has found, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but they basically found that you want to get your account opening experience to something like two and a half minutes. Getting below that is diminishing returns. Right. So as long as you're there, you're good. You don't need to get it to 60 seconds. Interesting. But you don't want it to be at five minutes. So you really have to sort of optimize certain things, but there is a sweet spot where you're getting the best experience that you need. Right, right. And then so as far as your data, you're really a connector, it seems like you've got your API. So the data that people are are sending you, are you storing anything? I mean, how are you sort of managing the data that is coming through your APIs? So we are storing it because our clients use our system as their customer portal, as their kind of central identity system. So what that means is that we make the onboarding decisions, but now we've introduced transaction monitoring and credit underwriting, which address the lifecycle of the customer. So consumers onboarding, 
you know, through Alloy, but 30 days later or three years later, they do some weird transaction or they want to open a credit card or they want to open a new product of some other kind. You want to have a place to understand what did I learn about them during onboarding? What do I know about them since then, their behavior since then, right? What they, how do they transact? How do they log into their profile? From what devices, et cetera? You want all of that in one place so you can make better ongoing decisions. And so for that reason, we store the information on behalf of our clients in their systems. None of it is shared. It's all encrypted, et cetera, et cetera. But it does allow them to have better utility of the product. Right. So do they ever go back and like re-verify someone if there's something suspicious? I mean, you talk about synthetic identity fraud where someone is just doing just fine for several years and then suddenly, boom, it's suspicious behavior. So you'd want to re-verify them under certain circumstances. One might be if they're just doing something riskier, you know, maybe you let them transact with 25 bucks in the first place. So your threshold was relatively low. You didn't care that much, right? If they were going to be a bad actor. But now they're going to do a $10,000 wire transfer. Now you really care. So you might re-verify them and add some additional layers. Mm -hmm. You might want to ask them to take a a selfie with the driver's license, for example. Or for other reasons, you have to re-screen them, right? Through OFAC screens or negative news screens, because maybe they weren't on a watch list two years ago, but now they are. So there are a bunch of different reasons to sort of continuously check up on information. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So... I read that you recently added credit underwriting to your offerings. Can you detail what exactly you're doing there? It's really like an extension. We've called it a new product and it certainly is a new product in many ways, but it's also an extension of our existing product because it's really credit underwriting is just a form of onboarding, but specific to credit products. So the way you can think about it is that there's Our traditional onboarding product has been KYC, AML, risk and fraud focused. This is credit focused. I mean, just visually, even looking at the products, very similar where you're pulling in a variety of forms of data and helping to make decisions. So you're writing rules that say, you know, I'm pulling data from the credit bureau and maybe I'm doing some cash flow underwriting based on their transaction history and forming a decision. And instead of maybe yes, no manual review, maybe my outcomes are yes with this credit limit yes, with a different credit limit, no. So you could have sort of different areas in terms of what types of credit or what credit lines you want to extend to them at the end of that decision process. But it really is conceptually the same as our onboarding product in many, many ways. Are you adding credit data specific to the, so that's, so you are adding that kind of uh, a little bit more intelligence for a lender? We're adding in credit data, we're adding in alternative credit data, and we're adding in cash flow data so that you can make decisions on any of those things. Okay, interesting, interesting. I want to switch gears a little bit and I want to talk about diversity. And I was reading about some of the things that you have done and Alloy is probably one of the very few fintechs that has more female employees than male employees. And you also have a high percentage of uh, non-white employees Tell us a little bit about your approach there and you know how you've been able to really, I feel like, break the mold of many fintech companies. I'd break it down into a few things. So, And the caveat to all of this is we're not where we want to be, particularly when it comes to non-white folks. We have a lot of work to do. So while I'm proud of where we are relative to the industry standard, the industry standard is really bad. So it's, <laughs> it's pretty much. low. Yes. It's pretty bad. <laughs> so that's the caveat to all of this. Early on, I think the advice everyone gives, and it's unfortunately just true, is that it matters what you do early. So for us, having 
a woman having a couple other women on the team join early made a huge difference because, and women would tell us this after they joined or when they were interviewing, like I walked into the office when I was interviewing, I saw two other women there. I felt much better. Or I looked at the website, I saw some women on the page and I just felt like it was a better place for me. So it's obvious, you know, there's no secret sauce or silver bullet here, but it's like having more women early is easier to attract, recruit, retain other women. And so that's my best advice to other founders is like, just do it early and make a point of it. The second is that we have an incredible people leader and we hired a people leader earlier than I think other companies were. I think she was employee number 14 or 15, something like that. And she's scaled with us and now is now VP of people at Alloy. This is something she's very good at and very intentional about. So she reports it to the executive team weekly. On a weekly basis, we know exactly how many women, people of color, et cetera, and keeps it very top of mind, not just for us, but for the whole company. So that's been really important because she sort of forces the issue at times where maybe we just start to feel too busy with other things and we don't want to pay attention to that. The third, I would say, is we're trying to hold ourselves accountable by, of course, the way she is, but we're trying to report it to the board quarterly. We have done a bunch of work with consulting companies. One of the ones I'll say has been fantastic is a company called Paradigm that comes in and helps you assess like the ways in which you're doing your hiring process, for example. Is it leading to the best outcomes that you really want? The way that you're doing your comp bans. So there's a bunch of work there that we've uncovered with some help of professionals these are expensive. Like I think that's the point is you have to pay attention to it. You have to spend money on it. Mm-hmm. You have to really, really acknowledge that it matters and put your money and your time where your mouth is. You can't just pay lip service to it. I talked to a lot of mostly male founders who were like, I'm trying to hire women, but it's like, okay, but you're not unless you're really spending the money and the time to actually do that. Right. You can't just sort of say you want it and manifest it. That's not how it works, unfortunately. Is it across your whole business? Because I imagine it's easy to hire women marketers and women engineers, right? I mean, but how are you approaching the different areas? That tends to be true. Product and engineering, to the credit of the leadership there, has actually done a fantastic job of bringing in more women engineers. And they've been more purposeful. I think we got, on my side of things, got a little bit lazy. (laughs) And so you can see the difference there in the teams where they've just had to be more thoughtful and kind of ruthless and saying, we want more female engineers or non-white engineers. And that's working. I mean, again, we still have room to improve for sure, but it's working. It kind of goes in iterations. So on the sales side, for example, we have a lot of male sales reps, but a lot of female sales leadership. So it's not always explainable other than the luck, time, attention, et cetera. Right. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So um, we're almost out of time, but a couple more things I want to get to. You've been in this game a while. It almost feels like to me when I, I look at the history of your company, you started a little too early. In some ways, it felt like, can you just talk about those early days? You know, I think I heard you on a podcast recently talk about it with the challenges of you know, really getting not just your first client, your first 10, 15 clients and really getting, you know, I think you said that you were always sort of on the brink of disaster in those early days. But what what got you over the hump? I mean, because it, it sounded like you were really hitting your stride before the pandemic. It wasn't just the pandemic that really got you going. But what got you over yeah. the hump? We had about three years where the business just didn't go anywhere. It didn't seem like anything good was going to happen. We really struggled to see any degree of scale, get any sort of interest. And I think a couple things happened, like you said, before the pandemic. We had clients who went live and started seeing some success. So either their businesses grew 
or their relationship with us deepened where there was like more stuff they realized we could be doing. And so I think that showed itself in either, you know, usage going up, right? It was pretty clear, like these clients are growing and we're making more money as they make more money, or just they're shouting from the rooftops how much they love this product and they're willing to talk about it and they'll do case studies and they'll do PR and they'll tell investors. The combination of those two things started to materialize, but just took a long time where we had to invest a lot of time and energy into making those companies successful and those integrations successful, which my co-founder and CEO, Tommy, largely did. He just spent a lot of time with these customers and very small ones. And then I think the other thing was luck of the market. So I could never have predicted that embedded fintech banking as a service you know, all that stuff would be as big as it is. But in 2018, 2019, those companies started to come around and it became clear that every company would be a fintech company and we were going to be able to be at the heart of that strategy. And so we just got lucky. We hung around long enough. We didn't run out of money so that we were there when when the getting was good. The last component, I think, was that we finally convinced a large bank to work with us. And that made all the difference for us when it came to raising our Series A. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Well, and you're off to the races now, it seems like. So speaking of which, um, what's on your playbook for 2022? What can you tell us about uh, what's coming? So the biggest things for us are taking the incredible mm-hmm. new products we have, the transaction monitoring and credit underwriting, and figuring out basically how to take it to market. So getting to product market next year is one of our biggest priorities. We're really lucky to have Charlie Ma, who was early at Plaid, early at Ramp, now at Alloy, figuring out basically how to get these products into the hands of the customers that need them. So ideal customer profile, understanding exactly who's going to be using what, at what price, with what sales process. So that's one of the big, big things for, for next year. And I'd say one of the other initiatives is like, we've been so fortunate to work with some of the banking as a service providers, embedded fintech providers, where I think we want to double down there and also make our product more developer friendly. Part of going up market meant that to some extent, I think we didn't do enough to make our DPI documentation, for example, really, really great. So we're spending some time figuring out how to make the product useful for the earliest stage companies who need us to get off the ground. Right, right. Well, uh... Well, good luck with that. We'll have to leave it there, Laura. I I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you, Peter, for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. See ya. You know, I love hearing these stories of entrepreneurial resilience where, you know, it was hard going for Alloy in the early days. And I think it's rare that a fintech company has a smooth sailing from day one. It seems like it does happen, uh, particularly these days. But most companies, I think, um, have some challenges in their early days. And it was interesting to me that What Laura said there was you're really focusing on making sure the clients were successful, making sure that they were able to rave about the the product and they really didn't get over the hump until they signed their first big bank and that really helped them and I thought that was super interesting. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was brought to you by Lendit Fintech LATAM, the region's leading fintech event. It's happening both online and in person in Miami on December 7th and 8th. Latin America is still the hottest region for fintech in the world, and Lendit Fintech LATAM features the leading players in the region. So join the LATAM fintech community this year where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. 
In-person and virtual tickets are available at lendit.com slash LATAM. <laughs>